So Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priest and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been, waiting to, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priest and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priest, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The word of the Lord. Monica and I will be gone the next two weeks because we're going to a friend's wedding in France, which we're really excited about. So you could pray that we'll just have a restful time away. Uh, but Terry and Andy will be preaching, uh, and so you have that to look forward to because they are really wonderful. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. 
Uh, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, we need him to sink deep into our hearts. Uh, we need to focus on him. We need to focus on your word and would your word change us? Would your Holy Spirit change us? Uh, we don't want to walk away uh, from this time together uh, just having heard a message. Uh, we want this message to change our lives uh, and then change the lives of others. Uh, so we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to briefly start out by talking a little bit about exchange, about trade. My sermon today is called The Great Exchange. But we, we live in a culture based on exchange and trade. You know, like there's the, the stock exchange where there's trade going on, or if you buy something, you give money and you get like a service back or uh, an item of some sort. But we, we, this culture of exchange is actually all throughout our culture. Like when you're an infant, uh, your parents, they reward you. If you have good behavior, you know, you might get a smile or a treat or your favorite toy. Uh, and then as you get older, you learn that you can trade things with other kids. Like you can uh, trade different toys for different toys. And sometimes you come out ahead and sometimes not. Like you can trade a rock for a Nintendo if you're really good at uh, getting a good deal. And you don't want to be the kid that walks away with the rock. You know, it's a really cool shape, shaped rock. So uh, uh, it makes it worth it. When you get your first job, you trade hours of your time, right, stocking shelves and bagging, and you usually get minimum wage. Uh, but if you perhaps get a little bit of education or, or a little bit of training, uh, you can trade that time for a better life. Maybe uh, you get married, uh, you, there's a trade in that where you're trading uh, kind of the freedoms that come along with being single for the responsibilities and the blessings of being married. As you work, you, give a, you trade like hours commuting, going to work, developing yourself professionally. Uh, these are all good things, but you trade that for an income, for hopefully progress in your profession, uh, for supporting your family. And so you can probably think of lots more examples of ways than your own life where you trade something and then you recede, or you receive something. Trade is important. And I want us to think a little bit today about uh, a trade that God offers us. See, there's, a, there, there's trades where you come out ahead and you're like, man, I got the Nintendo and that guy got the rock. And there's other times where you're, you're like, I got the rock and that guy got the Nintendo. Uh, there's times where we, we come out ahead and there's some, times when we don't. And yet with this trade that God offers us, God offers us an exchange where uh, I, everyone comes out ahead. Anyone that will take up God on his offer comes out completely blessed. This is called the great exchange. The author of Paul, so he's an author in the New Testament, he writes about the great exchange in the book, uh, in this letter to the Corinthians. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I've always thought this verse is kind of confusing, that Paul could have mapped it out a little bit easier. But I think what he's saying here is that God the Father, he, he, he destined, he, he made it so that his son 
would, his son who doesn't, doesn't know sin, so who's righteous, who's holy, who's good, who's completely pleasing to God, who's completely innocent, that his son, Jesus Christ, would take on our sin, would take on the payment that, that is required for the ways that we disobey God so that we can become holy and pure like Jesus. There's this exchange. We get the holiness of God. Jesus gets our sin. It's called the great exchange. Now, maybe you've heard different ways to illustrate this. Some have illustrated this with book covers. Maybe you've heard this illustration. Uh, so right, you have a book with all the, the pages and, and words uh, in it and the story, whatever's in that, and then you have the book cover, right? And so there's Jesus' book. It says Jesus on the book cover. And on the inside is this perfect story of complete obedience to God. Every paragraph, every word uh, describes a life that honors God in every, every, thought, every thought that Jesus thought, <laughs> every word that he said, uh, everything that he did, he always pleased God. And that's a great book to read. And then you open up our book, right? So you see ours, like we have our book cover, it says your name on it, and then you open it up, and there's a different story in there. There's not a story of perfection and constant goodness. There, there is a story of good moments where we all do good things, but there's also a life of brokenness and not pleasing God. And what the gospel is like is taking like my book cover and Jesus's book cover, taking it off the book and putting Jesus's book cover on my book and my book cover on Jesus. So that when God opens up our book, he doesn't see our, 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 our sinful, broken life. He sees his own goodness. He sees the goodness of Christ Jesus. And then Jesus pays the penalty for our brokenness. So that's one illustration. Another illustration that's similar is like if you watch a movie, right? You have one movie that's the life of Jesus. It's good. It's holy. It's pleasing to God. And then you have our life, and you know, maybe my, your life's like a comedy or a drama, but either way, it's, it, it has bad moments in it, right? There's, there's transgression, there's wickedness, and whose, whose video would you like rather have us watch on movie night? Like, it would, it, we all come together and, and watch your movie on the screen of everything that you've seen and said and done. I, I wouldn't want my movie up there. But if we advertised it as like, well, you know, my life story is going to be there, but then it was actually Jesus' life story. Well, that would be a pretty good trade, right? Like, you wouldn't be ashamed, you wouldn't be embarrassed because we're seeing Jesus' life instead of yours. So this is the, the great exchange, the great trade, that we're counted as righteous even though in reality we sin. And this doesn't mean that God doesn't see the good things you do or doesn't see the bad things you do, but he counts in his book the things of Christ instead of the things of you. But in order to make this trade, Jesus had to pay the ultimate price. He had to, to pay it with a cost of his life to make this trade. Jesus had to die so that we could live. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't want any of that. That doesn't sound like a very fair trade. I think that's a reasonable response. Hey, it's not fair that that, that I, all I have to do is repent of my sins and put my faith in Christ and I get his life and he has to pay the penalty for mine, that's, that's, not, that's unfair, that's unkind. And you're right, it is unfair. <laughs> but it's also our only hope. It's our only way of redemption. 
It's, it's, it's the only way that we can get out of this mess that we have put ourselves into. We need Jesus to trade his life for ours. And so in this story, I actually think we see a little bit of a living example of the gospel trade. I think we see this great exchange lived out. And I want us to focus on that as Jesus chooses to willingly lay down his life for an individual in the story, but then he also lays down his life ultimately for us, for any that would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This leads me to my first point, that Jesus willingly chooses to lay down his life for us. Now, I want us to recap briefly. Jesus has just celebrated the Lord's Supper. He's just instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, uh, the night of Passover, after Passover, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays. And then Judas leads a band of temple soldiers to come and arrest Jesus and take him to Caiaphas' house uh, where he is uh, interrogated and, 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 and beaten. We see a couple of those verses. The men were guarding Jesus. They began mocking him and beating him. And then there's this, this trial, this unfair trial. But in this trial, Jesus is laying down his life. Verse 66 and 67. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Now, what's this word Messiah? In the Greek, it's Christ. See, God promised in the Old Testament a Messiah would come, a Christ would come, who would liberate his people from their sins. And the people, they think that Jesus, that the Messiah is going to be someone who comes and liberates them from political bondage. But first, there, there's actually some truth to that. First, the Messiah comes and liberates from spiritual bondage. So when they ask right here, are you the Messiah? Jesus doesn't answer them directly. Notice how Jesus answers them, the second half of verse 67. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. Like, there's no point in that. This isn't an honest question. And if I asked you, verse 68, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. So instead of claiming to be the Messiah, which Jesus kind of already did when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now, this is a label that he has given himself before, and it, it identifies him with humanity. It says, I, I am uh, a man. I am a, a human being just like you. But it also has other connotations that are even greater than that idea. It's because there's a special prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so Jesus is kind of referring to this prophecy in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. This is a vision that Daniel has. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Notice how he describes the son of man. He was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. I think this is God the Father. was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they know that son of man can mean something more than just a human person. 
that it can mean something uh, divine. And so they ask him a clarifying question. Look at what they ask him uh, in verse 70 and 71. They, they begin to ask him, like, are you, are you claiming something greater than just you're a human being? Uh, verse 70, they, they all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. It's like Jesus is saying, you said it. You said it. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. They, they think that Jesus has just committed blasphemy. Blasphemy. This is the breaking of the, the second commandment, or the third commandment. They believe that Jesus has just claimed to be God, that Jesus has wrongly kind of cursed God's name by saying, I am God. I am equal with God. But is Jesus actually committing blasphemy? Is Jesus actually cursing God's name? No. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus is God. Because it's only wrong if it's, if it's not true. <laughs> See, Jesus is the one who is in control of the conversation. Jesus is, he doesn't give them the verdict on their own terms. He doesn't give it based on claiming to be the Messiah. No, he goes, he, he ups it a notch. He gives them this ammo. He says, yes, I am the son of God. I am equal with God. He is intentionally giving up his life. And this is the kind of shepherd that we have. Jesus is the kind of shepherd who intentionally exchanges his life for ours. John 10, 17, and 18 say this. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Jesus is willingly choosing to lay down his life for us. Now, what's the most amazing thing someone has done for you? Like, people have laid down their life for you. Maybe you've not thought about that or maybe you have thought about that, but like your parents, right? Like you, our son Elijah, I'm laying down time and uh, to take care of him and to raise him and to hopefully teach and educate him. And your parents uh, did that for you or someone who really loved and cared about you. Or how about when you, if you get married, you know, your spouse, they are laying down their life to be with you, but they're also kind of laying down their life. And that's a little bit of an exchange, a little bit of a, an amazing gift. Well, Jesus chooses to lay down his life for us, and his isn't just like a metaphor. His is, his is true. His is real. I told the story in January. I just briefly want to re remind you of it, of the French police officer. He exchanged his life for a female hostage. He said, you know, set her free. I'll be your hostage. And then he ended up dying. That was, that was an actual exchange of life, one life for another. Maybe... You, we need to remember as we head into Easter that Jesus actually laid down his life for you. He actually laid down his life for me. Someone actually gave up their life so that we can live, so that we can experience eternal life. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't put your faith and trust in him, then, uh, then that kind of, that, that is an offering waiting to be given to you. That's a gift Jesus has done the work. He has laid down his life for you. 
You have to take that next step. You have to say, okay, I want to make the exchange. I want to make this trade. I'm willing to, to give my life to Christ. if He'll give his life to me. Jesus willingly does this for us, even though we don't deserve it. Sometimes we think that we're entitled to things, that we deserve things, right? But when we come to this, like, we don't deserve Jesus. Jesus is completely innocent, but we are not. Luke really highlights the innocence of Christ Jesus and how he puts together this next part. So once the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, once they get enough evidence in their own minds to condemn Jesus, like they already wanted to condemn him, but according to their law, they lead him to Pilate. Pilate is the governor of Judea. But notice that when they go to him, they don't bring up the religious accusations. They don't say, like, this man claimed to be God. Because Pilate's going to say, so what? <laughs> and let Jesus go free. Instead, they bring three charges against him. And we can actually see these three charges in verse 1 and 2. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, one, we have found this man subverting our nation. Two, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. And three, he claims to be Messiah, a king. Well, the first charge is sort of true, sort of not true. Jesus is not leading a rebellion against Caesar. He did not ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. He rode in on a donkey. So he, he is subverting the teaching of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. He is, he is subverting their teaching, but he is not subverting uh, the rule of Pilate or the government. The second charge is definitely not true. This week during, we call it the Passion Week, right? He, Sunday through, through Sunday, this, this week of his crucifixion, when he when he rode in and he was in Jerusalem and he's teaching all that week, and we slowed down for some of this like last summer, uh, there was a moment when the, uh, the Pharisees tried to send some people to trick Jesus into admitting that they don't need to pay taxes. And they say, you know, sh should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what does Jesus do? He says, well, show me uh, you know, one of the coins. And so they bring a coin to him and he says, like, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So he never said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, like, he shut them up. They, they weren't able to answer this. They weren't able to get around this. And how about the third charge that he is claiming to be a Messiah, a king? Well, there's something to this. Jesus actually is the Messiah. He is king, even though he hasn't like, said, I am the Messiah. There's things he's done to claim it. So Pilate asks Jesus. He, narrow, he zeroes in on the one that matters the most. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. You said it. <laughs> Sometimes I think Jesus would be annoying to be in conversation with. He'd be like, yes or no? You said it. He is the king of the Jews, but not just the Jewish people. He's actually the king of all nations, all peoples, the whole world, the whole universe. But he's a different kind of king than they expect. He's not a military king, but he's a, a king that brings peace and grace and forgiveness. Verse 4 says, Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. The other gospels uh, flesh out the interrogation of Jesus a little bit more. 
But Luke just gets right down. Jesus is innocent. He is not guilty of their charges. Verse 5, but they insisted. He stirs up all the people of Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Jesus is innocent. Even though they accuse him. They're willing to lie. They're willing to condemn. They're willing to blame him. And if we're to look at this story and say, who do we line up with the most? It's actually them, not Jesus. Because there's things that we do to lie and condemn and accuse others. So if, if we're like anyone in the story, it's like the crowd. And the Bible is very clear that maybe you have never condemned someone to death, and hopefully not. But we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anytime we do something that's contrary to God's will or his character, and his character is perfectly good, his will is perfectly good, anytime we do something contrary to that, we are sinning, we're disobeying God. And so we deserve to be found guilty because we are. Uh, a pastor friend of mine uh, shared an article on Facebook uh, called The Most Sinful States in America. The most sinful states in America. Uh, so Wallet Hub, I guess is a service, it compared the 50 states across seven key dimensions. Anger and hatred, jealousy, excesses and vices, greed, lust, vanity, and laziness. And so uh, these are all kind of the spiritual terms, but they studied things like murder rates, like theft, uh, and things like that, uh, obesity. Uh, and so I wanted to share some of these results with you because now you're, you're curious. Uh, most sinful states in America. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, so this is uh, gambling. Uh, the, 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 the states that have the most gambling problem are Minnesota, uh, Mississippi, Minnesota, Kansas, New Jersey, and Nevada. Uh, and they actually have a, like a, a gambling problem that is eight times higher than uh, Michigan, Kentucky, Florida, and these other places. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's not good, right? So they have, a, they have a problem with gambling and wanting what other people want. They have a sin problem. Uh, how about other states? Uh, 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 problems with thefts per capita. So these are three times the difference. So New Mexico, Alaska, and Louisiana. I included this one for uh, one of our favorite families. Uh, you guys have a problem with jealousy, apparently, and theft. While New England, look at New England, we're doing pretty good. Uh, Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, um, uh, you know, that's where it's at, right? We all look for ways to justify ourselves. <laughs> we look at the next person and say, you know what? Alaska's a little worse than Louisiana, so I must not be so bad. All right. How about, uh, uh, you know, New York does pretty well on theft, but they don't do very good on vanity. So I guess they, they measured this of, as most beauty salons. Uh, so, uh, and there was other factors besides this too, but New York's number one, Florida, Pennsylvania, 
uh, and they're ten times worse than some of the other places. Now, the, the top most sinful states are Nevada, Florida, and California, uh, and the lowest are Maine, Vermont, and Massachusetts is like 33rd, so we're not like, we're not super great, but we're not so bad, which probably fits in in how we think of ourselves. Uh, so there's a, this is kind of a funny study, right? Uh, but did any state like not make the list? <laughs> no, every state has a problem with sin. And maybe it's like the obvious sin, the things I do on the outside, but it could also just be a sin of the heart. We all have a problem with sin. None of us are innocent, and the consequence of sin is eternal separation from God's love. And so we each need to receive forgiveness and grace because only Jesus is innocent. Like, only Jesus would not make it on this list. If if there was a list of us, most sinful of us, we would all be on the list. Jesus would not be on the list. Because he is pure, he's holy. So what happens next in the story, I want to skip over a little bit of it, but they take Jesus to Herod. Herod um, is the ruler of Galilee. When they say like he was committing sin and stirring up rebellion in Galilee, Pilate is like, oh, that's great. Like I can send him to Herod because Herod rules over the Galilee region. So he sends him to Herod. Herod's excited because he wanted to meet Jesus and see a magic show. And Jesus remains quiet. It's perfectly quiet, perfectly innocent. It's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7. He is the lamb that is laying down his life, that is just going silently to his cross. See, Jesus is allowing himself to be condemned to set us free. Pilate tries to do the right thing. He tries to set Jesus free up until a point. <laughs> Up until he meets resistance. Verse 13 says this. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. (laughs) Notice that it's no longer just the rulers that want Jesus to die. It's also the crowds, the people, the whole people. That means the people that had welcomed him in and said, this man is the Messiah, this man is the king. Now they're condemning Jesus. Man, the heart is fickle. They're shouting, crucify him. And they'd rather, they'd rather Pilate release a murderer and an actual insurrectionist than set Jesus free. Because they want their way and not God's way. And that, that's just like us. That's just like you and me. We want our way instead of God's way. We're also standing there guilty. And Jesus is standing there innocent. And Jesus is intentionally giving up his life for us. We don't want to make the the same mistake as these people. 
Verse 20 says, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. Those with the loudest voice here win. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the great exchange. It's like, uh, it's like if the, this is not a perfect illustration, but it's like setting free the Boston Marathon bomber and condemning like your favorite teacher from school or someone you really love and care about, who you know is innocent. That's what Jesus, that's what's happening to Jesus right here. Jesus is condemned and Barabbas is set free. But that's the same thing that Jesus does for us. See, we're Barabbas in this story. We're the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. We're the crowds. We're the sinful, broken humanity that shouts, crucify him. Anytime we disobey God, anytime we, we sin and, and, and choose not to, to walk in God's way, we're saying we're, we're aligning ourselves against Christ. But Jesus sees us and he loves us and he extends grace to us and he allows himself to be condemned so that he can set us free. Jesus dies for his enemies. It's like if that police officer in France, if he had given himself up, not just for the hostage, but for actually the terrorist who was committing the crime. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has died to set us free so that we don't have to, uh, to wallow in sin or shame anymore, but that we can just experience grace so that we're, we're counted as holy before God. It's not fair, but it It's mercy. (laughs) And now as we think about this message as a church community, we say, wow, if Jesus sees me as holy and blameless, then that's how I need to look at my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how I need to look and to see the church community around me. Because brothers and sisters, we're not perfect. (laughs) We do make mistakes. We do hurt each other and we do sin. And Jesus says, follow my example. See, see this grace that Jesus just, it's, it's his life that is set free for Barabbas. And so let's look at those around us and say, God's grace is on you. I want to see you like that perfect movie. I want to see you like that, like that, that perfectly written story. When I'm tempted to, to, to kind of call out the problems in your story, I want to focus on God's story. I want to focus on that grace. When I'm, when I'm tempted to point out the mistakes in, in your video, I'm going to remember that we're, we're focusing on Christ's video here. We're focusing on Jesus Christ, on the one who laid down his life so that we can be set free from sin and death. And we can experience true grace. I want to be the kind of person that that really walks like that, that really follows in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, that extends grace to those around me. And I hope that you want that too. 
Jesus allows himself to be condemned to set us free. Not just me free, us free. Our whole church, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're all set free from sin. So let's not count our sins against each other. Jesus allows himself to be condemned to set us free. Jesus traded his life for ours and he never regrets it. He did it intentionally, willingly, graciously. He died to set us free. And so we each need to accept this gift. There is that initial coming to faith, coming to Christ Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you will repent and put your faith in Christ Jesus tonight and receive that gift as a grace. But there's a continual great exchange for us as Christians, that we need to continue to live out this life of grace, extending grace to those around us, remembering that gospel exchange that everyone here, everyone in this room, everyone who couldn't make it tonight is just covered in the grace and the love of Christ Jesus. Jesus died to set us free. There are many exchanges, many trades that We won't come out ahead, but this is one that God offers us that we absolutely will. Jesus allows himself to be condemned to set us free. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great exchange. Thank you that Jesus sets us free. Jesus, would you set us free? Would we be a community that is just overwhelmed in your grace That we are entirely blown away that you would lay down your life for us. Jesus, that you would lay down your life for us. And that we would get to be counted as holy and pure and good. Lord, would we count each other this way? And would we be grateful for what you have done for us? Oh, Lord, we love you and we need you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.